Hello! Welcome to Eyes for Ears, our ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please keep in mind that these podcasts are for medical education only, not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figured that reviewing for clinic, OCAPS, or boards is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we review a high-yield topic and flesh out the why and the how. Today, we're reviewing infectious keratitis. Infectious keratitis? Oh my god, that sounds awful. There's, there's just what? Bacterial, right? Bacterial. Most of the time, it's yeah, probably going to be a bacterial keratitis, but there's also all the other fun branches of the microbial ecosystem out there. So we'll talk about bacterial keratitis and then also touch base on fungal, protozoan, and viral keratitis. Let's start with, let's start with bacterial keratitis. All right, Ben, you're on call. Corneal ulcer comes in from the ER. Oh, and God. What you thinking before you even go see him? What do you know about how a bacteria can affect the poor cornea? The things that we would think about are some risk factors for bacterial keratitis. So it can be contact lens wear is really common, or trauma, or foreign bodies in the eye, or abrasions that aren't healing well and weren't treated, chronic steroid use. But after I've gotten the history, what are some things I want to look for on exam, Andrew? So uh, in general, these are focal areas of infiltrate in the stroma with really sharp demarcation of their epithelial edges. Uh, oftentimes there'll be edema surrounding the actual inflammatory infiltrate. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether the stuff you're seeing is truly active or is an old stromal scar. Truly active ulcers will look a little more yellow and they won't be as quite consolidated looking. Right. And, you know, if you're going to take away something, the key to differentiate something that's just a simple abrasion versus something that's actual keratitis, actually an ulcer is whether the cornea looks clear or not clear. An abrasion will just be clear and the epithelium will be gone. But with keratitis, you should have something opaque or something white or something a little off yellow in there. You know, Andrew, I saw in the ED the other day that there was a patient who had, like, you know, they had definitely had an ulcer, but then I also saw this endothelial stuff and AC chamber cell and hypopion. And, you know, I called my senior and they told me to not tap and inject it. Like, why wouldn't I? It's endophthalmitis, isn't it? Mm, they were right, actually, because you can get that stuff and it wouldn't actually be endophthalmitis just yet. That stuff can all be just reactive inflammation. Um, so let's talk about some, um, particular bugs. You know, there's a common kind of infections that can cause bacterial keratitis, like staph and common strep species. We can talk about some, um, keratitides that have unique uh, factors associated with them. Like... I'm never saying that word, keratitides. Pseudomonas. So pseudomonas is particularly present in um, contact lens-related corneal ulcers because they tend to enjoy or grow on the biofilms that can develop on contact lenses. What's the longest a corneal ulcer patient has ever told you they kept their contact mm-hmm. lenses in? What's my record? Yeah. I think, I think my record was two and a half months, like 10 weeks. What's your record? Six months. Six months. My God, that is too long. Interesting fact, actually, about biofilms, um, especially for things like Pseudomonas, is that it can take around 24 to 48 hours for that biofilm to develop. You know, the uh, bacteria, actually, that make uh, dental caries, like cavities and such, 
Um, you can take, you know, around 12 to 24 hours itself also to form a biofilm. That's actually why dentists tell you to brush your teeth twice a day because the idea is you try to disrupt the formation of that biofilm. Similarly, that's why it's important to wash your contacts at least daily to prevent the formation of the biofilm from something like Pseudomonas. And on the topic of biofilms, there's another entity of keratitis where the bacteria makes its own biofilm called infectious crystalline keratopathy. Some of the risk factors associated with it are chronic corticosteroid use, such as in patients who have corneal transplants or are chronically on Predforte or something. What's unique about infectious crystalline keratopathy is that the crystalline part is actually a biofilm made by the host bacteria, such as Strobviridans is the most common kind, uh, an alpha-hemolytic strep species. Because of this biofilm, there's a minimal host response. So the eye might not be as red, they might not have as much you know, stromal edema, or um, it might not be as necrotizing, but it will have this nice crystalline structure that the bacteria can hide in. There's also, just to highlight something that can be tested on, on boards or OCAPs, is a group of bugs that are known to be able to infect through intact epithelium. Usually they have some kind of enzyme or some way to degrade intact epithelium to tunnel through. Or, should I say, channel through, because that's our favorite mnemonic to remember what group of bacteria this is. Ding, ding, ding. Mnemonic time. The channels mnemonic is C-H-A-N-L-S, channels, and that stands for Corinbacteria, C, Haemophilus aegyptus, that's H and A, so C H A, Neisseria, Listeria, and Shigella. Channels. So once you've found a thing like this, and uh, ultimately you'll just try to figure out what's growing exactly. Yeah. So get a culture. You should, uh, you should get a culture, you should uh, try to be as sterile or as clean as you can at least so that you don't contaminate anything. In fact, we used to have issues with our plates having condensation uh, and being stored the kind of wrong way up. So try to make sure the Petri dishes you're using with the agars as dry as possible, the condensation's gone. And as a side note, you don't need to culture every corneal ulcer. I'd refer you to the Will's Eye Manual. They have a good little checklist about what to culture and when you don't need to culture. Um, the basic summary of it is that if it's less than one to two millimeters or so, if it's not within the visual axis, and if you don't suspect a unusual organism, um, then you don't have to culture it. Then you can just start empiric therapy. But again, I would just look at the Will's Eye Manual before deciding not to culture someone who has a corneal ulcer. Another thing to consider is if your keratitis has a lot of thinning or dermal melt, a lot of practitioners will start a patient on vitamin C to help with collagen synthesis or doxycycline for its reported inhibition of matrix metalloproteinase, which is a key enzyme in the stromal melting process. We can also talk a little bit about one specific bacteria that also pops up a lot in different contexts, which is the atypical mycobacteria. That one's going to pop up on more specific media like acid fast stains or culturing on Lowenstein Jensen media. But that also can be uh, really popping up a lot after the refractive surgeries too, like LASIK. Yeah, so it, you know, at least in terms of questions, it's mostly will come up with LASIK-related keratopathies. So keep in your back pocket for those kinds of questions or clinical scenarios. And to be a bit more specific about post-refractive surgery bacterial keratitis, for atypical mycobacteria, they typically would occur 10 days or more after 
refractive laser surgery, along with fungal infections. So to review, if someone has a bacterial keratitis within 10 days after a refractive surgery, then you would suspect your normal bacterial keratitis. If it's after more than 10 days, then it's more likely to be an atypical mycobacteria or a fungal keratitis, which we'll get into later in this podcast. So Andrew, what do we do if these treatments aren't working? You know what happens. You follow this patient along that you saw in the ER for a long time. You've been blasting the heck out of their poor cornea with a bunch of really heavy-duty, strong, fortified antibiotics, and it's not budging at all. Now, could you go back and say, ha, look at these feathery edges. I knew all along it was actually fungal. I should have cultured that, or you should have. Uncharitably speaking, sure. But truthfully, even cornea specialists can't really tell apart a feathery edge of a fungal ulcer from a bacterial one. So usually the course is just, if they're not getting better with your antibiotics, then start thinking about fungal reasons why their cornea might be infected. Now, why would somebody be more at risk for a fungal keratitis? Common risk factors for fungal keratitis include plant or vegetable matter-related trauma, contact lens wear, a fungal species love to grow in the contact lenses as well, frequent topical steroid use if a patient is immunocompromised. And they're going to be particularly painful or feeling a lot of pain. Like we said, nothing's getting better. Those feathery edges have always been talked about, but you can't really hang your hat on them. And the focality of the infiltrate might not be as just singly focused as it might be for bacteria. You might have multifocal infiltrates and then satellite infiltrates in some other places. Right. A way I like to remember that is think about how mold, you know, when you see it on your ceiling tile, how it grows. It often isn't just one big clump, but a bunch of little clumps that grow um those are basically satellite lesions as well so that can help you remember oh if you see a satellite lesion what does that correlate to it's probably fungal keratitis all right and usually these fungal these fungi themselves it's usually candida or fusarium Um, you can expect to find these on saborot agar or blood agar and then confocal microscopy can show you whether these the uh, filaments or septa are branching or not which can also assist in differentiation and knowing what kind of treatment you got to use. Right. So if you're dealing with fusarium, then natamycin is usually your go-to treatment. But if candida or even aspergillus pop up, then you have to be a little more intense with amphotericin or voriconazole. This gets even more kind of intense sometimes. Some people are trialing out intrastromal injection of antifungal agents for some really recalcitrant fungal keratitis C's with varying results so don't jump right ahead to jab that needle right into the stroma but talk to someone first and then classically fusarium is more common in the humid southern u.s what what else is the uh no that's it we did it we've talked about all causes of infectious keratitis benjamin if you insist that we're finished then i'm going to push you into a pool or a lake where you'll just have to cross your fingers that you don't get a canthamoeba. Freshwater or salt water? All right, I'll go find a freshwater pool, <laughs> and then we'll try this out. So why is a canthamoeba so difficult to eradicate? What's so special about it? Well, it's a really resilient, stoic little guy, because uh, it can exist in a dormant cyst form and then pop right out into its other form, its trophozoid form. And it... It has a particular pattern of spread where it can spread along the nerves. You can have perineural inflammation, which can give patients very severe ocular pain. 
Besides paraneural infiltrate, it can also classically present as a ring infiltrate, though it doesn't have to. It grows on well, other agar. It grows on non-nutrient agar. And then in the same fashion, it'll grow along with E. coli and Enterobacter. That's because it's got to have some kind of food supply since your agar is not providing anything. So it eats the E. coli that grows there. Um, and it has to be that the agar provides no nutrition for the E. coli. Otherwise, you're just going to have a petri dish full of E. coli. If you also look under a, a confocal microscope, you should be able to see the cysts of the organism. To treat it, you can use a biguanide. That's the class that includes chlorhexidine, which we all know and love because we use the scrubber hands before surgery, or polyhexanide. It The reason you like biguanides is it can kill both the trof- trophozoite and that difficult-to-treat cystic form. There's also um, moving topics again to a different bacteria, one that is relatively less seen in the immunocompetent population is microsporidiosis. So who does microsporidiosis keratitis usually affect, Ben? Uh, you, classically, it was in immunocompromised patients, especially during the heyday of AIDS. While it can still pop up under in immunocompromised scenarios, um, it apparently has been popping up more in Southeast Asia in immunocompetent patients. So this too, for patients like that, will be a very painful keratitis. And you'll also see a punctate epitheliopathy. And you might even see the small tiny cysts in that area, areas of epitheliopathy then. Yeah, and so it doesn't really make as much of a big confluent ulcer or penetrate deep in the stroma. It'll just look like a really recalcitrant punctate epitheliopathy. The treatment for it is if you can restore their immune function, that typically is what you need to help the microsporidiosis go away. But fumagillin has also been shown to be effective in some cases, though not all. There's one more group. There's one more group of infectious keratitis that we need to know about, isn't there? We can't get away from it. It's herpes. So how, how can herpes, like a primary herpes infection, present, Andrew? Might, might as well go from front to back. It can present as a follicular blepharoconjunctivitis. So every time you're standing there, minding your own business, clinic seems to be going well, and suddenly a rogue attending pops out around the corner and goes, what's the differential for follicles? Go. You're, you're scared stiff, right? You can probably mumble out herpetic, zoster, simplex, and then past that, do you know anything else? Sure you do. Just remember, molluscum's always going to be there. And that might be the easiest to remember because it's so, you know, exotic. But don't forget about, of course, your more bread and butter herpes of viruses that we talked about. But also the chlamydia. Adenovirus can do it too. Could also just be medicamentosa. Can't do anything else. What the hell is MC ham? That's the differential. This molluscum, chlamydia, herpes, adenovirus... Uh... We and were in a mnemonic, and I didn't even know it. We oh, were, geez. You were deep in a mnemonic, my friend. I feel so used. Molluscum, chlamydia, herpes, adenovirus, and that's just to remember it's like any kind of viral conjunctivitis, and medicamentosa can give you a follicular conjunctivitis. I've been used for a teaching point. So there you go, your follicles, MC Hammer. Is that what we were going for? Yeah, but it's like, you can remember it because it's like, it's like a pig, you know, like a little, a cute little pig. But it's because so he's like MC Ham. 
See that image? You can't get it out now. It's stuck there. In my fornix? Just like herpes. <laughs> so another way you can present... So that's how it presents on like the conjunctiva. And we all know that herpes can present on the skin as vesicles. So we know what vesicles look like. On the cornea, it looks kind of different. What does it look like, Andrew? In the cornea, you've got your dendrites as often talked about. Your dendrites can come in real dendrites or pseudodendrites, but we'll just kind of ignore that for now, just dendrites. What else looks like a dendrite? What else could it be besides herpes? Uh, you want to try this uh, on got, and off riff, Ben? Yeah. I'll take herpes. You'll take zoster, I assume. Uh-huh. And then past that, uh, you could actually just have a weird-looking healing epithelial abrasion that just... Go figure, looks like a dendrite as it heals. But what else more, a little more exotic could it be then? Yeah, you know, we talked about acanthomoeba before, and that it can, it's been known to start appearing as a dendrite. Um, and then the weird one to remember is tyrosinemia type 2, which is a genetic problem. So if you have a child who has bilateral dendrites that are recurrent and doesn't seem to be responding to therapy, you can remember that tyrosinemia type 2, which you know, they like to bring up on the boards, can cause that kind of a dendrite. So to review, we have herpes simplex, herpes zoster, healing or recurrent epithelial abrasions as it's coming together, tyrosinemia type 2, and acanthamoeba. If you want, you can remember the mnemonic hats with two A's and a Z at the end. So that's H for healing abrasion? H no. for herpes? H for herpes. A, A for, for abrasion. Abrasion, acanthamoeba, tyrosinemia, and zoster. That's and... it. Hats. Okay. That's for your dendrites. The herpes, reason... ab- herpes, abrasion, and acanthamoeba, tyrosinemia, and zoster. So. Hots. <laughs> Hots. So. How could you prove that any of these is whatever it is we just said? If you've got a handy little vesicle to culture, you can send that along and see whether it's one of these fun things in your two mnemonics or not. In addition, zoster keratitis is known to have more of a pseudodendrite. That's another thing that can help you differentiate zoster keratitis. A pseudodendrite doesn't stain like a, your typical herpes simplex dendrite. Whereas a herpes simplex dendrite will have fluorescein staining in the center of it, a pseudodendrite is more of this kind of stuck-on thing onto the um, the cornea. Some people describe it as like you took a bit of paint and splattered it on the on the um, wall, then you'd have a raised area where the paint splattered. As a result, fluorescein won't stain onto that raised plaque, but rather it'll pool around it, leaving a negative staining pattern. When it gets to just epithelial involvement for herpetic lesions though and we're going back to just simplex herpes simplex here it's been ascertained that various antiviral eye drop therapies will help now people have their different preferences among them some of the older agents like trifluridine are very toxic and you have to apply it so many times like nine times a day and it's really rough on the eye because they've got thimerosal for one in your trifluridine, it's really uh, kind of rough. It'd be much preferable if you're in an area that's got it on formulary to use gancyclovir, topical gancyclovir, because it doesn't have all those, that as much toxic uh, effect on your cornea. 
And studies have also found that one can do orally cyclovir or valacyclovir, and that's purportedly equally as effective as topical therapy. So some providers are moving in that direction per BCSC. One thing with valacyclovir, one thing to remember is you have to be careful in immunocompromised patients or patients with significant liver problems because one of the known side effects of valacyclovir is to develop TTP or HUS, hemolytic uremic uh, syndrome. And uh, you, as an eye provider, you don't want to do that. So keep that in mind if you're going to put someone in valacyclovir. So we always have this uh, debate then, and we always revisit the head study and try to remember and don't. But when do you use steroids for a herpetic viral keratitis? Not for just keratitis. It has to be stromal keratitis. Yeah, so if you see the dendrites and the epithelial problems, but you see no stromal infiltrate, you're probably going to keep the steroids in your back pocket. You're not going to bring them out just yet, right? Right. But if you see some like whitish haze to the stroma or overlying corneal neovascularization over the stroma, then you really have to think about um, stromal keratitis. You also have to think about discoform keratitis, which is really an endotheliitis where you have the circular area of endothelial KP, and overlying that, because the endothelial cells aren't working, you'll have a overlying stromal and even epithelial edema over that circle. And in both cases of endotheliitis and stromal infiltrate, steroids can be helpful. Hey, hey, Andrew. Yes, Ben. Heads up. We have to do the head study now. Heads up, get it, because it's... Uh... So the HEADS trial had... My, my head is hanging down right now. <laughs> our, the HEADS uh, trial had uh, a couple of conclusions. We'll just highlight some of the more important ones, especially when managing stromal keratitis. One is that the topical steroids reduces the length of stromal inflammation and resulted in better visual outcomes. So most providers will start their patients who have stromal keratitis on topical prednisone. They also found that Orally cyclovir reduces recurrence over a 12 to 18 month span after the initial after the initial episode of stromal keratitis. They actually found that oral acyclovir does not treat the help reduce the length of the average episode of active stromal keratitis, but most providers will still start the patient on it because it helps reduce the recurrence rate. If a patient has multiple recurrence, most uh, providers will start the patient on lifelong acyclovir, assuming no side effects. Finally, another significant finding of the HEADS trial is that there's no clear risk factors that precipitated attacks. Classically, we think things like stress or initiation of steroids or you know lifestyle risk factors may trigger the onset of a episode of stromal keratitis, but that's not proven and was not shown in the HEADS trial. And that's all we have for infectious keratitis this time. We did it, Andrew. Hooray! We stamped that disease. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. You can also leave us any questions, comments, or corrections. We'd love to hear them. And it helps us to rate and review us on iTunes. And a big thank you to Dr. Jessica Chow, our cornea attending and director of the cornea service at Yale, who taught us so much of the material that we learned in this podcast. And a big thank you to you for supporting us by listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thank you, Jasmine. <laughs>